we today are going to jump into a three-week series uh, called Church Is. And, and I don't want you to miss any of these messages. I want to make sure you get, uh, get here through these three Sundays. And also make sure you get signed up for a life group starting next week. But if you have your Bible, grab it, head over to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians. Um, we're going to be in Ephesians 2 today. If you don't have a Bible, then uh, you can grab your phone or your tablet, head over to the YouVersion Bible app. We've got all of our notes on there. Just click on events or live, and you can follow along there. Uh, you can also grab your bulletin and take notes uh, within that. There's a place for you to do that there. But let's start this way. Definitions matter, don't they? Like definitions matter. The meaning of something matters. I mean, what something is determines how, how we treat that thing, right? When we have something defined correctly, we can then approach it correctly, deal with it correctly, prioritize it correctly. It's important that we define things, that we understand what they are so that we can act accordingly. Right behavior follows right belief. Think about that a second. Right behavior follows right belief about what something is, about what its purpose is, about what its value is. Right, be right behavior follows right belief. Like laughing hysterically. That's a behavior, right? Is it good or bad? Laughing's pretty good, right? But... Should you laugh hysterically when your wife comes out in a new outfit she just bought? I wouldn't recommend it. I just wouldn't. I just wouldn't do that, right? Should you laugh hysterically in the middle of a funeral? Probably not. That would be inappropriate. Why? Because we have a right belief of what a funeral is and what it isn't. So our behavior follows suit. What about... What about making out with your wife or making out with your husband, making out with your spouse? Is that a good thing? Yes, I can recommend that. You, you should do that. But should you make out with your wife at the grocery store? Probably not. Should you make out with your wife at the movie theater? A little better, but still no. That's weird, right? Should you make out with your spouse in the middle of church? No, you shouldn't. You shouldn't make out in front of everybody. What about on your couch at home? Now that's better, right? That makes more sense. Is it okay to even talk about making out in church? Some of you aren't sure, all right? <laughs> and some of you need to make out more, all right? But that's a message for a different series on marriage that I don't have time to talk to you about today. You see... We have these behaviors that aren't inherently bad, but when we do them in certain situations, it just doesn't make sense. That's because, that's because definitions matter. Meaning matters to us. Our belief about what something is affects the way we treat that thing, our behavior towards that thing. That's why if you go out to eat with my family, um, right now we've got a one-year-old, a three-year-old, and an eight-year-old. So if you go out to eat with my family, I don't know what you're thinking, all right? But you do it. If you do that, uh, you'll hear me say to my three-year-old son, Joshua, where are we? And he'll immediately calm down and whisper, in a restaurant. Because he knows that in a restaurant, we turn down the volume and we turn down the crazy, right? He knows that, all right? I tell Hannah that same thing too, but she doesn't care. She's one and she screams and she does what she wants, all right? But my eight-year-old, 
is very well behaved in a restaurant. I don't have to tell her where we are. Why? Because she knows what it is. It's a place where people go to have a nice meal. They pay for it. They want it to be nice. And so when we're at Chili's, it doesn't make sense for us to act like we're at home, to act like we're at the park, to act like we are at cross training or Six Flags or at a funeral, right? It doesn't make sense. What something is affects how we act, or it should. Behavior follows belief. And there's this spectrum of, this spectrum of maturity within this, right? Like, I mean, I, I don't expect my one-year-old to have a right belief about what the purpose of a restaurant is like I expect my eight-year-old to have. So there's this spectrum. And value is a big part of this, isn't it? Like you act differently with things that you value than with things that you don't value. And we all place different values on different things. And sometimes we're way off base, right? Like my three-year-old, almost four-year-old Joshua, he loves pennies. All right? He just loves them. But really, he calls any coin a penny. And so he's like, pennies! I'm like, quarters! He's like, pennies! I'm like, all right, pennies, whatever. So he, he, already at his age, he knows that there's value in money. There's value in coins. But he's a little confused because he doesn't like dollars. And so I give him a five and he's like, what's this? A piece of paper? I want pennies, all right? I want pennies. He, he just kind of doesn't really, doesn't really get it. It's not good unless it's a coin to him. But then there's something else that he values more than all the pennies in the world. You know what it is? TV. And my daughter Kennedy's not too far behind us, okay? We don't give our kids a lot of screen time, uh, just like one or two 20-minute Netflix shows a day, and that's it, one, two, 10, 15, whatever. Uh, I'm kidding, two, one or two a day. Uh, we don't do uh, iPad games, we don't do uh, you know, video games, anything like that, so they don't get a lot of screen time. So when they do get to watch TV, it's like a big deal. They value that, right? Like my son, Joshua, if I offered him a choice between $1,000 and a 20-minute Netflix show, he'd choose the show every time. If I said, hey, do you want to go to Florida for a week of vacation, or do you want to watch a 20-minute show? You want to watch Paw Patrol? Every time, Paw Patrol! <laughs> Paw Patrol! If you don't know what Paw Patrol is, I don't even understand your life, okay? <laughs> you should check it out. You should just check it out. Right behavior follows right belief. Behavior is determined by our belief about what something is, what its value is, and to be clear, I'm not talking about words. I'm not talking about the value you say something has. I'm talking about what you actually believe. What you do, your action, your behavior, not what you say. That's how I can tell what you believe, what your value you place on this one thing is, what your priorities are. So with all this in mind, it seems like a worthwhile endeavor for us to spend some time talking about what the church is and what it isn't. So we can make our actions line up with that. So we can give it the right amount of time, effort, energy, and even money. What church is and isn't should affect how we act towards it. Are you with me? 
And so that's the thrust of this three-week series. We're going to do a lot of if this, then that. So if this is true about what church is, then it means that over here for us. It's if, if this, then that. Because I think a lot of us don't really believe that church has much value. And I think it's because while we may be able to say all the right things, we don't really have a good understanding of what church is. Like a lot of you, no matter what you say, your behavior, the way you live your life, shows that you really think of church as kind of a hobby. I mean, it's just one of the things you do. You've got family, job, kids, school, church, baseball, swim, vacation, hunting. It's just one of many things on a list that you do. You just come to church on Sundays. And I'll be honest with you, that just kind of weirds me out a little bit. This whole church is a hobby thing. It just kind of weirds me out because church has got to be the lamest hobby ever. I mean, seriously, I don't know why you're here if you don't love Jesus or don't want to love Jesus. Like church has got to be the lamest hobby ever. Get a boat, go fishing, do scrapbooking, do fantasy football, play Pokemon Go if you're, I'm just the filter cop, the if you're on that. The filter caught it. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that. Church is the lamest hobby ever. I don't understand you just come in here because this is what you do on Sunday morning. Aren't you bored out of your mind? You've got to be. You've got to be bored out of your mind. So for some of you, church is hobby. For some of you, church is location. It's this building. This is church. Church happens here, and then you go home, and church is not there. It's back here, right? It stays here when you go home, and you say things like, I'm at church, I'm going to church, but then you leave, and you leave the church. It stays here. For a lot of you, church is really just a social club. It's Rotary, it's the Country Club, it's Kiwanis, it's fraternity. Your friends are here, nice people are here, good kids are here for your kids to be friends with. It's just a social club. For those of you who grew up in a certain kind of home or came from a certain kind of tradition, for you, church is religion. It's doing the list, it's checking it off. It's about guilt. When you don't go, you feel guilty. When you do come, you don't feel guilty for like a minute right? It's a checklist. It's a, I have to perform for God kind of thing. It's law. It's penance. And when it comes to anything in your life, your behavior towards that thing is based on what you believe about it, what it is, what its value is. So in this series, I want to talk to you about what church is. Church is not hobby, Church is not location. Church is not social club or religion. It's much more than that. Church is family. Church is mission. Church is life. And so we're going to stay predominantly in the book of Ephesians throughout this series. We're not going to go verse by verse, but we'll get a pretty good study uh, in it through this series. So let's start with Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 12. It says this. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ. So every one of us, no matter how long you've been doing this church thing, no matter how long you've been doing this Jesus thing, was at one time totally in darkness. We knew nothing of the promises of God. We knew nothing of hope. We were strangers to God. We were so far off that we didn't look for him. We didn't hope for him. We didn't ask for him. We were so consumed with ourselves and with darkness that we knew nothing of the light and didn't even long for it. We were running as fast as we could away from God towards the enemy of our soul, away from light and towards the darkness, away from the truth and towards the the lie. But then, what what Christ did on the cross happened. Then the cross happened. Not just historically, but personally. The cross happened 2,000 years ago, but not just that. It happened for me. It happened to me, and I was changed. You heard some of that in the testimonies. I was changed. Something happened to me, and my eyes were opened by the power of the Holy Spirit to the fact that God's righteous, just wrath was pointing at, at us for our sin as we deserved. But instead, he poured that wrath out on Jesus on the cross, saving you and me and giving us a way to him. It made, us, it made this way for us to be brought near to God. Truth replace the lie. Light replace the darkness. Hope defeated hopelessness in our hearts and minds. And we who were born on this side of the battlefield waging war against God, we defected from the army of darkness and we joined the army of light. And all of a sudden our lives were transformed. Why? Because of the cross. Because of what Jesus did on the cross. The apostle Paul says this next in verse 14. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Okay, I know this is a bit wordy, right? I know you're like, huh? (laughs) What did we just read? But just follow me here, right? He's talking about Gentiles and Jews. And Gentile just means that you're not a Jew, okay? So how many of you are a Gentile? Let me try again. (laughs) Gentile just means that you're not a Jew. You're not born an Israelite or a Hebrew. Track it with me? So how many of you are Gentile? Yeah, <laughs> it's probably all of us, but if, you're, if there's any Jewish people in here, we welcome you and we're glad you're here. And I'd like to know that you're Jewish, so just on the way out, talk to me, all right? So then I know that, that we're not all Gentiles in here, right? But I'm a Gentile, 
We're all Gentiles because we were not born into the Jewish family. So he's writing to Gentiles and he's saying there were once two groups of people, Jews over here and Gentiles over here, the people of God and the enemy of God. And for you Gentiles, he says, there was really no way for you to accept the promises of God and become the people of God. There was no way for that to happen. There were these two groups of people. But now, in the cross, because of the cross, Jesus is our peace. Jesus brokered peace between these two groups of people. Now, the enemies of God are no longer enemies of God, but are friends of God. Those without hope now have hope in the promises of God. The two people became one, and he killed the hostility, the anger, the hate. He killed it. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Look at verse 19. What does all this mean? What does this create for us? So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Okay, hang with me, all right? Citizens, saints, Members of the household of God. Galatians 6.10 also calls us a household of faith. So hang with me. This is talking about Gentiles and Jews, but the truth applies to us today, to you and me today. Before we gave our lives to Christ, we were strangers. We were aliens one to another. Our lives had no intersection that mattered, no loyalty or common purpose, no reason to do life together, but now... Things have changed. Now you and I, because of what Christ did on the cross, you and I have become one. We are now members of God's household. You and I are now family. Because of the cross, church is family. Without the cross, we're strangers. With the cross, we're family. Church is not hobby, location, or religion. Church is family. That's why the Bible over and over uses family language to talk about the church. Just read the Bible. The Bible will never call the church an organization, an institution, a business. It'll never do that. The church calls, or the Bible calls the church a body and a family. When you're born... You're born into a physical family. When you're born again, like some of those testimonies we're talking about today, when you're born again, you're born into a spiritual one, the church. Tracking with me? When you're born, you're born into a physical family. When you're born again, you're born into a spiritual one, the church. Earlier in Ephesians 1.5, it says we're adopted as sons and daughters in Christ. Hebrews 2 says we're called brothers. 1 Timothy 5 says we're to treat those who have been Christians longer than us as mothers and fathers in the faith. And those who have been Christians about the same time as us as brothers and sisters in the faith. In 1 Timothy 3, the Bible lists qualifications for one who would seek to lead the church. You know what's not there? Business experience. A good mind for numbers. Organizational leadership ability. It's not in there. None of that. But it does say that a person who seeks to lead the church should first be able to lead his own what? Family. God's going, if you can't lead your family... I don't want you leading the church because it's a family. If you can't lead your family, I don't want you leading mine. 
Church is family. But the crux of this whole thing is, is what it means for us, right? Because the last thing I want is for you to go get the church's family t-shirts and the church's family bumper stickers and call it good. If, they, if we don't know how to apply them, if they have no real meaning in our lives, I'm not really into Twitter posts and Facebook posts that, that just don't mean anything, that don't really translate into life. So I said we would be getting into some if-then statements. If this is true about church, then it means this for us over here. I've got three of them for you today, and I'll cover them quickly. That means it's going to take forever. All right. Here's the first one uh, for you to think about. If church is family, then it's about relationships, not religion. If church is family, then it's about relationships, not religion. Think about your family for a second. How, How does your family operate? Is it not based on relationships rather than rules? I mean, isn't your family organized differently than your workplace or the gym or the government or the school? Isn't it organized differently? I mean, there are rules, sure, but your family does not function based on rules. It functions based on concepts like dad, mom, brother, sister, grandpa, grandma. Those names have meaning to you because they are the relationships you hold most dear in your family. We are the church at Great Oaks. We gather here. We live here. We're this local church. We're this family. We have extended family of believers that meet all over the world that are a part of our extended family, but this is our family. We don't gather because of religion, because of rules, or because of some doctrine or theology. We gather because of identity, because of relationship. Brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, family. I don't know if I'm getting across to you this morning. I don't know if I'm really hitting it right this morning or not. But to come here for activity, information, or entertainment, or out of some religious desire to be found worthy before God this week, is to miss it. You're missing it. If that's you, you're missing it. If you're coming here and just kind of hiding in the crowd, if you come and go with no or very little connection with anyone else in this room, you're missing it. And listen, if this is all the church you get, if this on Sunday morning, is all that church is to you, if Sunday morning is it, if Sunday morning is the sum total of church to you, then you're missing it. You're missing it. We're a family. That means we do life together. We care for each other. We check in on each other. The Bible says we love each other, carry one another's burdens, encourage each other, serve each other, build each other up. That all happens with relationship, right? It can't happen in any other way. You are not designed by God, nor are you being asked by God to do life alone. You were created to follow Jesus with the family of God, the church, not alone. At Great Oaks, that means you're involved in a life group. You become a real part of this family when you take the next step from just showing up on Sunday and you go meet with a smaller group of this family on a weekly basis. Life groups gather where families gather, in homes. 
We help each other. We do life together. We pray for each other, encourage each other, study the word together. If church is family, then it's got to be about relationships, not religion. Here's the next one to think about. If church is family, then we expect imperfection, not perfection. If church is family, we expect imperfection, not perfection. Listen, just like in your family, there are some crazy people here. Don't point at them. There are some crazy people in, just like in your family, there's some crazy Uncle Carl's and there's some, even some mean Aunt Susie's, right? If you don't have that person in your family, it's you, okay? And so it's you. And so I don't have time to like help you accept that today. I got to keep preaching, okay? But we can talk about it later. It's you. Everybody has them. If you don't know who they are, it's you. Listen, I've said this before and I'll say it again and again because I believe it's important and it's something I want you to understand and even repeat. The church is made up of sinners. Hypocrites, gossips, cliques, prideful, arrogant, and sometimes rude people. Just like Walmart. (laughs) Just like the gym you go to. Just like your family just like your biological or adopted family. We're imperfect. The only difference is that we should know it, right? We just know it. We know we're jacked up. There's no such thing as a perfect church. I've said this before. There's no such thing as a perfect church. If you find a perfect church, don't go in because you'll mess it up, (laughs) right? Unless you're perfect. And if you're perfect, let's talk later, okay? Let's talk later. Don't even raise your hand because it's going to go bad. Yeah, don't go in. And then if you haven't been hurt or offended by someone here at Great Oaks, just give it time. Just give it time. Because we are a group of sinful, messed up people. Just give it time. It'll happen. We will jack you up. Someone will say something insensitive or hurtful. It'll probably be me. Right? Someone will say, it'll take credit for something you did. Someone will open their mouth before they engage their brain. It'll happen. Because just like your biological family, there are no perfect people in your spiritual family. And listen, the more time you spend with us, the more evident that will become, right? And so when you jump into a life group, you'll find out that some people you thought had it together really don't have it together, right? The curtain gets pulled back. You ever experienced that? You like go to life group with this person, this, this sweet little lady who's always smiling on Sundays, greeting at the door, um, singing on the stage, something like that. And you're like, man, they really got their life together. And first meeting, you're like, they don't have their life together at all. <laughs> you find out that this smiley lady's got an anger problem, right? She doesn't like to be disagreed with. But listen, God is working on her just like he's working on you. And she is in this process with God called sanctification. She's being conformed into the image of Christ one day at a time. Her mind is being transformed one thought process at a time. But listen, you doing life with her and her doing life with you, that's how we become more like Christ. That's how we mature, right? We sharpen one another. It might not always be fun, but in the end, it's worth it. As we walk together in honesty and in imperfection, God does, a, God does something awesome. 
Our hearts are mended and knit together within the family of God. We learn to forgive and walk in humility. We learn about grace, being given something good that we don't deserve, and mercy, not getting something bad that we do deserve. We learn about all that as we walk with others. And it's this really beautiful thing that God has set up. Without it, without this peace, you'll never get to where God wants you to go. You just won't. Because he designed it all to be done in community as a family. Look at this last one. If church is family, then commitment is required, not optional. To be a part of a family, commitment is kind of assumed, right? You gotta be committed to be a part of a family. You can't really be a part of a family if you're not committed to it. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to be committed to a church family. That means, that means you show up, not just whenever you want, like it's a social club or a, a hobby. No, it's family. This is family. So you show up. You're committed to being here on Sundays when we gather as a large family and on other days when you gather with your life group. If there's a need in life group or here in our larger family, you step up, right? You're committed. You step up and you help whoever it is that has a need. You're a part of the family, so you contribute. Of course you contribute. You're a part of the family, right? Your win is our win. Our win is your win. The church's family, I mean the church's failure or the family's failure is your failure, right? So of course you contribute. Of course you commit, and when you commit, it's not just words. In a family, there's, there's accountability, right? It's kind of built into the way we do family. There's accountability. Like, you might not be able to talk to an acquaintance or a coworker or a friend about not following through on something they said they were going to do, right? When they say they're going to do something and they don't follow through, you might not be able to talk to them. You might go, well, that's not really my place. I don't really know them well enough to talk to them. But family's different, isn't it? Family, family is different. We know our family well enough to say, hey, I thought you were gonna take out the trash. Stinking up the kitchen, get to it, right? Hey, I, I thought you said that we were gonna make gathering with our church family a priority, but we hadn't been in four weeks. Hey, you said you were gonna do this, but you didn't. Hey, you got something in your teeth, right? We know church, we know family members well enough to do that kind of thing. And there's forgiveness there for sure. It's always done in love, but when you're a family, commitments are followed up with accountability. And although it seems like at the time kind of a bad thing, when we look back on it, we realize it's a good thing. Accountability is good. It helps us follow through. In the context of your church family, accountability helps you to do and to be what God wants you to do and to be. So it's an even bigger deal, isn't it? Church is family. Let's end by looking at this, the rest of Ephesians 2 here. Starting in verse 19 again. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, 
you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So through this, through you being a member of the family of God, through you taking the next step and doing life together with your church family, through you making this about relationship and not rules, through you expecting imperfection instead of perfection, through you committing to others in your church family and following through, through all this, God is building something, isn't he? He's building something. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the linchpin. He's the center. He's the foundation. But from there, God is building you into the temple of the Lord. Strike that. That's not actually accurate. God isn't building you into a temple in the Lord. He's building us into a temple in the Lord. So that we may become the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit together. Together. Listen, I don't expect a kid who's never been to a restaurant to know how to act. I don't expect Joshua, who's not even four yet, to understand money or math or to value a $100 bill over 10 pennies. And I don't expect you if you don't believe that church is a family, to act like it. But if you do, if you are convinced, like I am, that church is family, then it should affect what you do next, how you interact with other people in this room, how you connect with them on a deeper level and begin to do life with them. Because when you know what something is, you know how to act accordingly. Right behavior follows right belief.